0: We celebrate players who hit the ground running in their professional careers at a young age. But what about the players that took just a little bit longer to find and achieve success? We look at five of baseball's greatest players who didn't become stars until after turning 30 years old. Today, on Rounders, a history of baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Rounders, a history of baseball in America. I am your host, Jeff Lambert. Just a couple announcements before we get into the episode today. Uh, I'm really thankful for the feedback that I got and the signups that I got for the newsletter that we started, but I've decided that I'm going to put it on hold for now. And there's a reason for that. Uh, I've found with the email newsletters, not only has it been a struggle to keep it up on a consistent basis, uh, it's also been more of a passive way for me to be able to connect with you. And I want a more active way to be able to keep the conversations going with the people that listen to the show. So I'm going to put the newsletter on hold for now until we grow a little bit more and I have a little bit more time to make it worth your while. But uh, one thing I am going to focus on because it's a simple addition to this show is I'm going to start releasing a video companion for each episode. So you can uh, follow me on YouTube and I'll make sure to include the link in the show notes for you to do that. And then you can choose to listen or you can choose to watch. And in the video version, I'll make sure to include some additional photographs or footage of what we're discussing. And if you just want to look at this mug that maybe you've been listening to for the past two and a half years and see what it looks like the YouTube channel would be the best way to go. So I'll include that, like I said, for you to be able to sign up for the video as well. And uh, just overall, the goal of this is I want to make it an interactive experience as much as possible. So I think video is going to help us do that. And then I think the other way that, you know, I love being able to connect with people that listen to the show is through social media. So please, um, if you haven't followed on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, take a moment and sign up, Um, not only can you interact with the content that I publish, but also I try to respond to every message that you send me, whether it's a comment, a criticism, uh, an additional uh, episode you'd like to see in the future, all that is, is worthwhile to me, and your feedback keeps this going every time I feel like I need to stop or things are too much or or anything like that. I always get a message at the right time. Somebody, you know, saying, hey, could you cover this topic or we missed the show? You know, those kind of things. They do mean a lot. The other thing I'm working on in addition to the YouTube channel is I'm working on a website where you'll be able to go and be able to not only access the uh, episode content, maybe send a link to a friend a little bit more easily, but you'll be able to read The episode content, if you choose to consume it that way, you listen to it, and you thought some of the information was interesting, you'll be able to find a blog post that's a companion to it and be able to send that information to somebody else or use a snippet of it and something that you're creating on your own so it'll be there, uh, easily accessible to you. And I'll include a section where you can sign up as a monthly supporter to really help me keep this show going. You can do so right now in the show notes uh, if you so choose. Uh, Every subscriber, no matter how much, it means so much to me. I'd like to take a moment and thanks Tom uh, Tomy, who signed up as a Tomy, like Jim Tomy. Uh, I'd like to take a moment and thank Tom Tomy for signing up this month as a subscriber your support means the world to me thank you so much and overall like I said if you have a little extra scratch and you enjoy the show and you'd like to give uh, this is a great way to support independent sports media and kind of stick it to the uh, out of touch corporate sports monopolies out there Uh, there's so many people like me that are doing this because we love sports and we love to cover the topics that we think uh, that you'll find interesting and the best way to do that is to help us be able to make a living doing it so so, overall, follow uh, us on the YouTube channel. Take uh, Keep a lookout for the, uh, the website upcoming. And then, of course, follow on social media. All those things mean so much to me. Thanks for making me a part of your day. That means the most. And let's get into our topic today. We're going to talk about the late bloomers in baseball, the guys that didn't figure it out until after they turned 30. But wow, did they make up for that lost time? Let's get to it. <music> Today's a special episode for me, ladies and gentlemen, because I think it is important to look at the cases of people who played the game of baseball who maybe didn't fit the mold of what we count as kind of the careers of the Hall of Famers, of the all-time greats. We think about those people as just being prodigies as soon as they enter the league and continuing this high level of play until they retire. But that's not always the case. And in, in this situation, we have a good chunk of players Who have shown the ability to learn as they grow from playing professional baseball and then figuring it out much later, sometimes over a decade after they started playing in the league. And those players deserve recognition, too, because not only did they develop their talent through hard work and practice, they also didn't give up. And for someone who has natural ability, who figures it out right as soon as they come into the league, that's great because they have to sustain that success throughout their career, which is another challenge in particular. But for someone who doesn't find success right away and has to move from city to city and try to be able to keep that dream alive, I think that's a special challenge uh, in itself. And so to look at players who really were able to overcome that initial failure and be able to find success later on in their careers, I think it's important for us to pay attention to how they did that. And there are some commonalities that we're going to look at that I think contributed to some of these players, taking a little bit longer. But overall, we're going to look at some individuals who did exactly what we said, who really showed that perseverance and figured it out after the age of 30. So we're going to look at these players in chronological order. And we're going to start off with an individual named Lefty O'Doul. Lefty O'Doul played professional baseball from 1919 to 1934. He was nicknamed the man in the green suit. Now, the reason he earned that nickname was more for what he did after playing baseball than during his career. Uh, He was a very successful coach in his post-playing years in the Pacific Coast League. And he also started a restaurant bar in San Francisco. And both of those really led to him getting that nickname because he was known for wearing his fancy green suit to both occasions on a regular basis. So let's go back to Lefty's playing career. He started at 18 years old. He was fresh into the league, right at 18. And he signed on with the New York Yankees as a pitcher. He didn't find success right away by any stretch. As a matter of fact, he only lasted with the Yankees less than two seasons. And then he found himself bouncing between several different professional leagues. He found a home for a little bit while in the Pacific coast league with the San Francisco seals, which he would go on to coach for several years after his uh, playing career was over. And then he also jumped around to other major league teams, but never really stuck anywhere. And this trend, Kept going until he was 31 years old. So we're talking about 13 years of a middling sort of existence in baseball. And remember, for him to keep up that dream of I'm going to make it, I'm going to I'm going to make this happen, that in itself deserves a lot of respect. That is a lot of time to not find uh, success to be someone who's on the next level, to be a major leaguer and to play in the league. Yes, he accomplished that, but I think he always wanted more, and it started to show at the age of 31. So at 31, Lefty made a decision that changed his career uh, for the better. He transitioned from pitcher to outfield, and that became his main position. Now, transitioning to the outfield, while that may not have had an impact on his at-bats, because during this time, especially as a pitcher, he was able to bat on a regular basis, but making that change seems to have really made all the difference. Because going into that season in 1929, he just flip the switch. He led the league with a 3.98 batting average, a 465 on-base percentage, and he racked up 254 hits. In that season with that first transition, he was named to the Sporting News's Major League All-Star team and he finished second in MVP voting. He only lost out to a name we all know, Hall of Famer Roger's Hornsby. And over the next 6 years, he kept a batting average of 300 or higher higher excuse me and he won two additional batting titles he finished his career with a 349 batting average a 4.13 on-base percentage and an ops of 945 for 6 years he played at an incredibly high level offent- offensively and when he retired in 1935 he had become a household name to most baseball fans during this time Now, Lefty was never elected to the Hall of Fame, even though he has the highest career batting average of any player who was eligible for enrollment into the Baseball Hall of Fame. He was one of the individuals who was on the ballot several times, and you only get a certain amount of times to be able to come up for vote before you are not able to maintain or stay on that list. And Lefty was one of those guys, unfortunately. But he does have a lasting impact on the league. He was one of the main guys who was responsible for exporting baseball as a professional sport to Japan. Now, we're going to do an episode on him specifically because of his role in spreading baseball internationally. So stay tuned for a future uh, episode on Lefty O'Doul because we will talk about his impact post-baseball career, even though he certainly was no slouch, especially at the end of his career. Now, why was he a late bloomer? My hypothesis for Lefty's transformation into an offensive powerhouse, I believe that he picked up a lot of knowledge on how to throw to batters over his 13 years of uh, of pitching from the mound. And I think that that transitioned to making him a better hitter because he understood how pitchers approached being able to take out batters. I think that he was never able to capitalize on that physically from the mound he just didn't have the stuff to be able to succeed as a pitcher but he was able to take that knowledge as a pitcher and transfer it to being a better hitter behind the plate and so that really seemed to in my opinion be the change as to why he was able to find that success later on in life. For our second late bloomer we are going to go to an individual named Hoyt Wilhelm. Now Hoyt played professional baseball from 1952 to 1972 His nickname, Old Sarge. He didn't start playing pro baseball, unlike Lefty, until he was 29 years old. So he is the true definition of a late bloomer. Now, why did he not start playing professional ball until he was 29? Several reasons. Number one, he actually fought in the U.S. Army in World War II, saw almost full action through the entire war. So when he got out, He decided that he wanted to pursue a professional career in baseball, and he was already in his mid-20s by that time. So he started off at the bottom rung. He spent six seasons in the minors and eventually started to work his way up. He finally got the call to the majors at age 29, and this was in 1952. So again, six years in the minors, really grinding it out, older than probably most of the other players that he was playing with. But he finally got that call up, and he went on to take complete advantage of it so as soon as his call up in 1952 that first season he went on to win the national league era title with a 2.43 mark over 159 in a third innings pretty impressive huh and he did this all as a relief pitcher keeping that era now the really impressive thing about wilhelm is he pitched even though he started at 29 he strung together a career that lasted another 21 seasons He pitched professional baseball until he was 50. His lifetime stats, he posted a 1.47 ERA over 1,070 appearances, 1,070 appearances, a 1.47 ERA. He was the first pitcher with 200 saves to reach that point, and he was the first pitcher to pitch in 1,000 games. So when you think of relievers who show longevity and success Hoyt was the first one to really make that happen. And on top of that, when you think of knuckleballers, famous knuckleballers in professional baseball, the discussion starts with Hoyt Wilhelm. So he was overall somebody who just made the most of his time in the professional leagues, even though he started a little bit later. And he was rewarded for that in 1985 when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And he was the first reliever to be inducted into the Hall So not bad at all. He started late, but boy, did he go longer until age 50. Now, why did Hoyt... Uh, why was he a late bloomer? Well, we know overall that he, of course, fought in the war, and he didn't start until his mid-20s in the minors. But also one thing that Hoyt credits to his success in the majors was that when he started off in the minors, he was trying to develop himself as a five-tool pitcher. He was trying to build out a full complement, and he just wasn't really able to perfect any sort of um, you know uh, combination of pitches that made him an effective uh, person that could do that. And so overall, he decided in his mid-20s during those six years in the minors that he wanted to focus on learning how to pitch the knuckleball. And he felt if he could perfect that one signature pitch, that would be the difference between him being able to be uh, someone who could sustain success in the majors or just be a middling minor leaguer. He actually said in an interview uh, after his playing days, quote, I got to messing with the knuckleball in high school and I started to see the ball was doing something and later on I figured it was my only ticket to the big leagues because I couldn't really throw hard and I knew if I was going to play ball, I'd have to make it some other way. So there you have it. Hoyt's secret to success, which allowed him to really hit that next level, was perfecting the knuckleball. So we've knocked out our first two individuals in the list of late bloomers for professional baseball. Let's take a quick commercial break for the seventh inning stretch, and then we'll come back and talk about our remaining individuals. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. I want to thank you for sticking with us. Overall, we have gone through talking about two players so far, late bloomers, who did not reach that all-star level of success until after they turned 30 we talked about two individuals we talked about lefty duel and we talked about none other than hoyt wilhelm and now we're going to go to our third player on the list of the late bloomers who found that success later on in life our third player is an individual named elston howard howard played in the majors from 1955 to 1968. his nickname was ellie now elston graduated in 1948 That was the same year that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball. And that had a dual effect on his future. On the one hand, it must have been inspiring for individuals like him to realize that now there is a path that's opening up to play in Major League Baseball. But unfortunately, when Jackie initially did break the color barrier, there was a backlash. And there were teams who did not want to take on that same sort of risk that the Dodgers were doing. There was a backlash from fans who didn't want to see baseball integrated. And so Elston didn't have the option in front of him immediately to play in the majors. So he took the other route that we saw a lot of other players during this time take. And that was for them to go and play in the Negro Leagues instead. Now at age 21, so just three years into his career, uh, the Yankees scouted him and saw that this kid's pretty good. So they signed him as a catcher, and Elston's in the major leagues. He was one of the first 10 players to break the color barrier in Major League Baseball. But there was one issue that really kept Elston from breaking out immediately, and that was because the Yankees already had a Hall of Fame catcher on their roster when they signed him, and that catcher goes by the name of Yogi Berra. So Elston Howard found himself playing behind one of the greats, And he took that opportunity to learn and grow. To his credit, he spent the next five years honing his craft, and he spent time between playing for the Yankees and their minor league club. He stayed in the system, but kind of bounced back and forth. Then, after those first five years of bouncing back and forth, he started to get more time in the majors, but he never played more than 100 games in a season. So he also found himself playing some first base, which allowed him to pick up some more games. So he would play some catcher, uh, giving Yogi rest, and then he would also play first base as uh, someone who would come in, you know, midway through the game or, again, you know, uh, a reserve who would come in and play on some off days from the starters. So this happened and this occurred all the way up until 1961. And in 1961, Yogi Berra had retired the previous season and he got the starting job right from the start. Elston, at 32 years old, was ready. He hit 348 in that first season as a starter, and 21 home runs he also hit. He made the all-star team that season, and he kept it going even after that first season as a starter. In 1962, he put up the same type of performance. He was named to the all-star team again, and he finished second in the batting title race in the American League. You go to his third season in the majors at the age of 34. He won the American League MVP award. Going through the rest of his career, he also won a gold glove in that year in 1963. And the next year, he won the gold glove again in 64. And overall, during the stretch of his career, he won 12 All-Star designations. He was named an All-Star 12 times. And he won six World Series with the New York Yankees. Even though he had to wait for his chance. He took full advantage of it once being able to get that slot. And when we look at Elston Howard, as the question we've asked for other ones, why was he a late bloomer? This really wasn't anything about him developing his skills, although I'm sure that time and that dedication did help him hone his craft. He was impressive right from the get-go. The difference was and, and one of the best defensive catchers in history, I have to throw that in. But he also simply just had to wait his turn. And he was behind one of the greatest catchers in baseball history in Yogi Berra. So once Yogi was was retired and, and, and that slot had opened up, Elston slipped in, showed everybody the type of player that he had always has been, and really showed the league what type of force uh, he turned out to be. And what a career he had. So that's Elston Howard. Now let's go to our fourth player on the list, a gentleman by the name of Jamie Moyer. Oh, Jamie, we're getting into the uh, the recent times here now, I guess, or at least the times that at least I started watching baseball as a kid. Uh, Jamie Moyer played in professional baseball from 1986 to 2012, Mr. Longevity. As a matter of fact, he was nicknamed the AAR pitcher, AARP pitcher. A-A-R pitcher. It's easier to look at it than it is to say it. But that was the nickname he was given because of the longevity of his career, which we're going to go into in a second. Jamie Moyer is known. His, his, his main uh, accolade is that he's the oldest player to start becoming a perennial all-star Uh, than any other player on this list. And let's just look at his career here. Jamie Moore struggled through the first decade in Major League Baseball in the same way that Lefty did. You know, he posted a winning record just one time in 10 years, in his first 10 years. So here we have a guy, you know, he's bouncing around from team to team. He's not taking full, he's not, well, I shouldn't say he's not taking full advantage. Certainly, you know, he he kept trying to hone his craft, but he wasn't able to find that success. And there wasn't a position change or anything that made him a better player. There was just one simple switch that seemed to really help him uh, achieve that next level. And that was when he was 33. He was traded mid-season to the Mariners from the Red Sox. And he was just a throw-in player for the deal. And uh, overall... All of a sudden, he finds himself in a, in a new situation, and he was named as a, a back-end starter to their rotation. And for the next nine seasons, Jamie Moyer turned into an all-star front-of-the-rotation guy. For the next nine seasons, he collected 133 wins and 1,128 strikeouts. And during that stretch, he posted a 600-plus winning percentage in all but one of those nine years. At the age of 33, he starts doing this. At age 36, he was in the top 10 finalists for the Cy Young Award. He was a steady starter for the remainder of his career. And what a long career it was from age 33 on. Just to give you an example of the career longevity that he showed at age 45, he went 16 and 7 with a 3.71 ERA and 123 strikeouts on the season for the Philadelphia Phillies. He retired at the age of 49. Excuse me, I said 50. <laughs> at the age of 49. He finally decided to hang it up, and he's only one of 28 players in baseball history to play in four different decades. Think about that for a second. My goodness. On the whole, Jamie didn't get as many all-star designations as some of the other players we talked about, but he was a steady front-end guy who posted winning seasons. He was named as an all-star once, and he was able to win a World Series once. But his his calling card was the fact that he was just a consistently solid starting pitcher from age 33 on. Out of his 267 wins for his career, 233 of those wins came after he turned 30 years old. So what was the difference for Jamie Moyer? Well, overall, I think that there were some similarities there with Lefty O'Doul. I think he relied on his experience and his smarts from pitching all those years, learning about batters, learning what pitches worked best for him, and he was able to translate that finally into an approach and a strategy that worked out. He just needed that change of scenery, I think, and that opportunity to be uh, a regular rotation guy. And the Mariners got a great deal out of getting Jamie Moyer because of that. There's one last thing I want to say about Jamie. Jim Salisbury, he's a sports writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. He said this about Moyer in a column tribute that he did after Moyer retired. And I think it really encompasses the type of player and the type of approach Moyer had to take to find success. So this is what he had to write about him. He said, quote, he has the ability to read and attack a hitter's weaknesses, and he does so with artful strokes on his pitching hand. He has a PhD in changing speeds, one of the most important yet underappreciated elements in effective pitching. End quote. So there you have it. Jamie Moyer, one of the oldest players to start finding that level of success on our list, and he just became someone that you could rely on even all the way up until age 49. My goodness. Here's to you, Jimmy. And let's go to our final player on the list of late bloomers, players that found all-star level success over the age of 30. Our fifth player is none other than Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson played from 1988 to 2009. You may remember him as the nickname The Big Unit. Randy started at the age of 24 with the Montreal Expos. He was traded to the Seattle Mariners after his rookie year. And of course he spent most of his career playing for Seattle from ages 25 to 30, though, he wasn't the player that we know, or that, uh, I think, you know, uh, the player that we grew up knowing in terms of his success and his dominance for five years, as he started growing his career, he was just a mediocre pitcher. He always had that killer fastball, that high nineties fastball, but, uh, he was better known for the complete lack of control that he had on that fastball. And his whip was actually over 1.3 during those five years. So this guy had very little control. Uh, As I was doing the research, the name that kept coming to mind was Rick Vaughn from the major league movies, kind of the same thing where he has got this heater, no control. (laughs) So Randy was in that situation. Now to Randy's credit, He didn't give up, and he didn't change course necessarily. He knew he had a strong fastball, and he knew he had some good supporting pitches. What he did was he spent a lot of time working on his control, first guy in, last guy out type of mentality, trying to be able to get those pitches um, under a a better uh, control scheme for him. And that was the key to him having such a long career, being able to perfect that. So we fast forward from age 24 to uh, to age 29 in 1993. This is when he started to show those signs of greatness that we associate with him today. In 1993, he posted a record of 1908 with a 3.24 ERA, and he recorded 308 strikeouts. So hello, Randy, here I come. In 1994, the only thing that shortened his stats from the previous season was 1994 was the strike, the season where we had a shortened uh, amount of games because of the 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 labor dispute. And so in 1994 he still posted a winning record but he didn't get that many games under his belt, but he came back in 1995 now at the age of 31 and he picks up right where he left off. He went 18 and 2. He finished with a 2.48 ERA and 294 strikeouts. And in that season we saw Randy Johnson win his first American League Cy Young Award. For the next 14 years, he won five Cy Youngs, he was a 10-time All-Star, he led the league in strikeouts nine times, he led the league in ERA four times, he won three games in one World Series round, and he won the Triple Crown Award. Just dominant. Absolutely dominant. Dominant. Excuse me. In 2015, he was elected to the Hall of Fame. He got 97.3 of the vote. That's the third highest percentage of any pitcher all time. So, when we look at Randy's career post, you know, post the career, he's arguably one of the greatest left-handed pitchers in baseball history. But you never would have guessed that if you had watched him during the first five years of his career. Now, what was the secret to Randy Johnson's success? What was that that switch that he flipped? I think for Randy, it really came down to honing in on what he needed to work on most, because he knew he had the goods. It was just a matter of perfecting it. And so that that dogged mentality of not giving up, of spending all that extra time trying to be able to perfect that part of your game that you know you need to be able to perfect. And not every player is willing to do that. Some players have that talent. They're not willing to hone it, and their career suffers to their detriment. But Randy kept trying, and obviously the success speaks for itself. So that's where we have it, ladies and gentlemen. Five players who achieved all-star level success after the age of 30. I tip my hat to them as someone who's now in their late 30s for them to be able to really focus in on deciding that they wanted to reach that level and just really pushing through those years, those early years, where they didn't find success and not giving up. I think there's a lesson there for all of us. We keep trying. We can achieve great things. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. Remember, you can help me out by leaving a review on whatever podcast app you use. If it's Apple Podcasts, if it's Spotify, if it's uh, really any of them, my goodness, there's so many of them now. However you access the podcast, if you can take a minute to leave a review, even if it's just some stars, that helps me so much in terms of the algorithm and people discovering the show. Take a moment too, if you haven't already, follow me on social. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Rounders Podcast. That's one word, Rounders Podcast. Say hello, shoot me a message. Let me know what you think about the show. I'd be happy to hear from you. Uh, like I said, I try and answer every message that people send me because, you know, uh, part of this is really social for me. I really do enjoy the interaction between people who listen to the show and what I'm trying to do moving forward. So overall, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. And remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball.